we'll read this morning from Genesis chapter 25. Genesis 25. Hear the word of the Lord. Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashuram, Latushim, and Leumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abada, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived, 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried, and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Beer Leharoi. Now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebajoth, then Kedar, Adbiel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadar, Tima, Jetur, Naphish, and Kedema. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names by their towns and their settlements, twelve princes according to their nations. These were the years of the life of Ishmael, one hundred and thirty-seven years, and he breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt as you go toward Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren." This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with some of that, with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I am about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. 
And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Chapter 25 of Genesis, which we have just read, is a chapter of transitions and contrasts. The transition from Abraham to Isaac as the patriarch of the family, but also the transition from Isaac to Jacob as the son through whom God's promise will be fulfilled. As to contrasts, we have the contrast between Isaac and the other sons of Abraham, the contrast between the death of Abraham and the birth of Isaac's sons, the contrast between those two sons, Jacob and Esau, and a contrast between Isaac and Rebekah, and even a contrast between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob versus Esau. Now, all of these contrasts work together to make two points that are related to one another, and I had intended uh, to briefly touch on one of those and then focus on the second one. The first point, of course, is the election of God by grace alone, which is a big part of the story of Jacob and Esau, and we're going to explore that aspect this morning. The second point is that if we overvalue the things of this world, we will undervalue the blessing of God. I had thought that I could cover both of those points in one sermon, and they are related, but apparently the Lord had other plans. As I reviewed the sermon last night after dinner uh, to put the finishing touches on it, I realized that I had two sermons and needed to preach them separately. So the information on the back of your bulletin is now incorrect and will be there for next week. But this morning, uh, we will be looking at the idea of God's election by grace alone. And then next week, we'll look at this same chapter again and explore the second point. As we work our way through this chapter, we will explore the theme of God's sovereignty in salvation or election. And then next week, we'll explore the contrast between the two brothers in greater detail. So uh, there are some things this morning that I'm going to briefly skim over and not really uh, explore in detail because we're going to look at them next week. Now, I'm going to teach you a new word. Uh, This chapter presents to us uh, five pericopes. Uh, A pericope is a fancy word uh, that simply means a section of Scripture that can be uh, self-contained. It contains a complete thought, but it can also be related to other sections around it. So there are five of these in this chapter. And they overlap each other chronologically. So the chapter presents these things as complete thoughts and then presents the next one. And the timeline can get a little confused if we don't pay attention to the details. For instance, we're told of Abraham's remarriage and his other children. Then his death. Then Ishmael's genealogy. Then the birth of Isaac's sons. And then the episode with the stew and the birthright. Well, this might lead us to believe that Abraham is dead during the events of Jacob and Esau's lives, but he doesn't actually die until the boys are 15 years old. In fact, some ancient Jewish sources say that the lentil stew that Jacob was preparing 
was a traditional dish prepared by mourners and suggest he was preparing it because his grandfather Abraham had just passed away. That may or may not be true. I have found that the Jewish commentators have a tendency to aggrandize things uh, in the book of Genesis. The cave in which Abraham is buried along with his wife Sarah will become the family tomb. Abraham and Sarah are buried there. Isaac and Rebekah will be buried there. Jacob and Leah will be buried there. The Jewish commentators, without any biblical or historical evidence, also claim that Adam and Eve are buried there. So they have a tendency towards the grandiose when it comes to some of these things. But they might be right. Abraham could possibly uh, have just passed away when that event takes place. I don't know, but I do know there is a lot of chronological overlap between these five pericopes in this chapter, and it's important to understand this or we might get confused about certain things. In the previous chapter, we were told that three years after Sarah's death, Isaac was comforted by his marriage to Rebekah. At the beginning of chapter 25, we see that Abraham also takes a wife. Now, we don't know the exact timing of this, but it it seems to be that it was around the time of Isaac and Rebekah's marriage or immediately after. Then in verses 2 through 4, we're given a genealogy of Abraham's sons, grandsons, and great-grandsons through this wife whose name is Keturah. In verse 7, we're then told that Abraham was 175 years old when he died. He was 140 when Isaac and Rebekah married. So if he remarried around that same time or shortly after, that means he was only married to Keturah for 35 years or less. In fact, in verse 6, we see that he sends those sons away before he dies. So it's very unlikely that the great-grandchildren are born at that time. The genealogy is presenting data to us that is future to most of the rest of the events in this chapter. But here is the first contrast that we see in this chapter. It is between Isaac and the other sons of Abraham. And so we read in verses 5 and 6, And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. Now, it says concubines in plural. And this is probably a reference to Hagar and Keturah. Now, Keturah is called a wife here in verse 1. But Hagar is also said to be a wife in Genesis 16.3, and yet they're both called concubines in other passages of Scripture, including the genealogies in First Chronicles. With Sarah dead, Keturah was a true wife to Abraham. There's no sin in his part in taking a wife at that point. But as it concerns the promise, as it concerns the inheritance of the covenant blessings and the land of promise, Sarah was Abraham's wife through whom those promises would be fulfilled, through whom the promised seed would come. So there is a distinction between Sarah and Keturah and Hagar. Abraham had already sent Ishmael away uh, many years earlier, and now he sends Keturah's sons away as well. He gave them gifts to help them get started in their lives, but the bulk of his wealth, and more importantly, the promises concerning the inheritance of the land and the blessings of the promised Redeemer, were reserved for Isaac. 
It has been clear for many chapters now that Isaac was the son of promise in whose descendants the covenant promises made to Abraham would be kept and fulfilled. For in Isaac your seed shall be called, God had said in chapter 21. So this chapter reinforces that point by drawing a contrast between Isaac and Abraham's other sons. Isaac is the one that God has chosen, the son of promise. It is his descendants who will inherit the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And so Abraham sends these other sons away. And it says he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. Remember that in Genesis, to move eastward generally denotes moving away from the presence of God and away from his blessing. Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden to the east in Genesis 3.24. Cain went east away from the presence of the Lord, we're told, in Genesis 4.16. Mankind traveled east to the plain of Shinar to build the Tower of Babel. Lot journeyed east when he parted ways from Abraham, and now Abraham sends his other sons east out of the land of promise and away from the son of promise, Isaac. There's a clear contrast here between Isaac and Abraham's other sons. But we also see in this that God's promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations is being kept. These six sons of Keturah, along with Ishmael and his 12 sons, and then Esau and his descendants, are the founders of several other nations, which some of whom will continue to be referenced throughout Scripture. Midian. Uh, one of Abraham's sons by Keturah is the father of the Midianite nation. Moses will actually marry a woman of the Midians. His father-in-law will prove to be a godly and wise counselor, but most often the Midianites will be enemies of Israel. In fact, Gideon will deliver the Israelites from the oppression of the Midianites in the book of Judges. But we do see that God is faithful to keep his promises. He promised Abraham he would be the father of many nations, and now we see this coming to pass. But while that is true, it's also true that only one of those nations descended from Abraham is chosen as God's vessel of blessing to bring the promised Redeemer into the world, and that is the nation descending from Isaac. Verse 7 then begins the second pericope, and we find that Abraham was 175 years old when he passed. And then verse 8 gives us the details of his death, and it's an interesting verse. It says, Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. So Abraham breathed his last, or as the King James Version says, he gave up the ghost. And so we see here, once again, a close association between the idea of breath and spirit. The Hebrew word, gahwa, can mean both, as does the Greek word, pneuma. So when the breath leaves the body, the spirit leaves the body. That is the point of death. And we also find that God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, 15 is being kept. God had said that he would be buried at a good old age, and indeed he is. So the Lord has promised and he has kept his promise. But then it, it uses this odd phrase. It says that he was gathered to his people. 
Now, this is an odd phrase, but it's related to his giving up the ghost or breathing out his spirit. Because this obscure phrase was gathered to his people teaches us that there is life after death. After the physical body dies, the spirit has departed, but it continues to live on. John Gill says in his commentary, this is to be understood not of his interment, there being only the body of Sarah in the sepulcher in which he was laid, but of the admission of his soul into the heavenly state upon its separation from the body, when it was at once associated with the spirits of just men made perfect. So Abraham was gathered to his people in that, uh, not that he was buried with his ancestors in the land of Ur, uh, he was buried simply with Sarah in the cave which he had purchased. But he was gathered to his people in the sense that he was spiritually joined with the souls of just men made perfect after death. His people were Adam, Seth, Noah, Shem, his ancestors who likewise believed in the Lord. And we see in verse 9 that Isaac and Ishmael then buried him. So there seems to have been some continuing communication between Isaac and his brother Ishmael. Perhaps upon the death of their father, there was even a reconciliation of that relationship between them. Some even reason that since the same language is used upon the death of Ishmael in verse 17, that he had come to believe in the God of his father Abraham. Verse 17 says, These were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. And he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. So Henry Morris says in his commentary, This suggests that though not sharing in the material aspects of the Abrahamic covenant, Ishmael was a believer in the God of Abraham and shared in the spiritual blessings of all who die in the true faith. Now, I tend to agree with his assessment, and here's why. Because this phrase, to be gathered to his people, is not used very often in the Scriptures. In fact, it is used of a pretty limited number of the patriarchs. Abraham is gathered to his people Ishmael is gathered to his people. In chapter 35, we will see that Isaac is gathered to his people. And then in chapter 49, Jacob will be gathered to his people. Outside the book of Genesis, this phrase is only used twice in reference to Aaron and Moses. That's a pretty exclusive list. For Ishmael to be grouped together with Aaron, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob seems to indicate a commonality between these men may be something of a surprise to us to consider that Ishmael may have repented and believed. But I think it's a wonderful testimony to the grace of God, which is able to save even a mocker like Ishmael. Even though the physical blessing and the inheritance of the covenant was through Isaac, Ishmael could partake of the promise of salvation by faith in the God of the covenant. So that's encouraging to me, and I hope it is to you as well, to see that God saves sinners, even those such as Ishmael. Now, after Abraham is buried, we're told in verse 11, and it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Beer Laharoi. So we see that the blessing of Abraham becomes the blessing of Isaac. Isaac, 
as the son of promise, the one through whom Abraham's descendants would be named, is now the patriarch of the covenant people. His is the chosen line. Now, the third pericope then gives us the genealogy of Ishmael in verses 12 through 18. Ishmael's sons are listed, and then we are told in verse 16, These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names by their towns and their settlements, twelve princes according to their nations. Again, this is a fulfillment of a promise made by God to Abraham in chapter 17. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes and I will make him a great nation. So now we see that God has again kept that promise. Ishmael has had 12 sons who have each established a nation. Ishmael himself has been blessed by God, perhaps even coming to faith. And so then in verse 17, we read of his death, and we find that he was 137 years old when he died, which means he lived 49 years after the death of his father Abraham. So again, these pericopes overlap chronologically. Jacob and Esau will be 64 before their uncle Ishmael dies. The scripture isn't trying to give us a straight chronological timeline here, but rather it's giving us complete capsules of information. First Abraham and his other sons, then Abraham himself, now Ishmael, and then finally Isaac and his sons. Verse 18, though, tells us of the territory inhabited by Ishmael's descendants. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt as you go toward Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. Now, we don't know exactly where Havilah was located, but Shur was in the Sinai Peninsula. The land to the east of there is the Arabian Desert. Just north of the Sinai Peninsula and north of this territory inhabited by Ishmael and his descendants is the area where Isaac had settled in Beer Laharoi. So Calvin concludes in his commentary, why does he rather speak thus of Ishmael than of the others in saying that he died in the presence of all his brethren? except for this reason, that whereas they migrated toward the eastern region, Ishmael, although the head of a nation, separated from the sons of Abraham, yet retained his dwelling in their neighborhood. Meanwhile, the intention of God is also to be observed, namely that Ishmael, though living near his brethren, was yet placed apart in an abode of his own, that he might not become mingled with them, but might dwell in their presence or opposite them. If you look at the map and consider these things, it appears that Ishmael lived and died between Isaac and his other half-brothers, the other sons of Abraham who had traveled further east, which again shows that while he was separated from Isaac as to the inheritance in the land of promise, he was still close in proximity to him, both physically uh, and therefore hinting of a close spiritual proximity by faith in the covenant promises of a redeemer who would come through the line of his brother Isaac. But then beginning in verse 19, we enter the fourth pericope in the chapter. It's the longest one and the one of most importance to the history of redemption, for it tells of the birth of Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. Verse 19 reminds us that Isaac is the son of promise, that he was begotten by Abraham as God had 
promised. Then in verse 20, we're reminded that Isaac had been 40 years old when he and Rebekah married. So again, breaking chronology. Uh, This is rewound the timeline in verse 19 to the birth of Isaac, skipped forward in verse 20 to his marriage. Isaac being the promised son, we're now concerned with his seed, with his offsprings, in whom Abraham's descendants will be named and inherit the promises of the land and of nationhood. But there's a problem. Like Abraham and Sarah before them, Isaac and Rebekah have trouble conceiving an heir. And so we read in verse 21, Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived The scripture doesn't dwell long on Rebekah's barrenness as it did on Sarah's. But we see from verse 26 that Isaac was 60 when the twins are born, which means that the first 20 years of their marriage were childless. And once again, we see the fulfillment of God's promise of salvation is dependent upon the will and the work of God, not the work of man. Isaac and Rebekah could not produce an heir by their own effort but resorted to prayer, pleading with God for a son. And this is the first time that word appears in Scripture, to plead with God in prayer. The next time we see it will be in Exodus chapter 8, when Pharaoh asks Moses to plead with God to remove the plagues from the land. Enough with the frogs. Plead with God to get rid of them. So here Isaac pleads with God that he would enable Rebecca to conceive a child. And so the Lord grants his request and Rebecca gets pregnant. But then in verse 22, we find that she's pregnant with more than one child, but she doesn't understand what's happening. But, but the children struggled together within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she's pregnant with twins, and the kids are, as Calvin says, carrying on an intrauterine war within her. They're struggling with one another in the womb. And all she knows is that her pregnancy is not peaceful and sweet and calm. It's disturbing, upsetting. There's something going on, and she begins to question, what's happening with the pregnancy? Is everything okay? Am I going to lose the child? So she seeks the Lord in prayer, and the Lord answers her and explains the situation in verse 23. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. She is pregnant with twin sons who are struggling with each other even now and will continue to do so down through their generations And God tells her that the younger of the two is the one that God has chosen to work through to fulfill his covenant promises. Now, by God saying that the older will serve the younger, he is saying that his blessing is with the younger of the two twins. And we know that is what is meant because later scripture testifies to this. God speaks through the prophet Malachi telling Israel of his love for them. They are in bondage and yet He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. God says that he loved Jacob and hated Esau. 
Now, the Apostle Paul later quotes that passage from Malachi along with verse 23 from Genesis chapter 25 in Romans chapter 9 where he is explaining the sovereignty of God in salvation. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. So God chose Jacob, and Paul says that he did so, so that his purpose of election might stand. What is that? What is the purpose of election? Well, Paul says that the purpose of election is to show that salvation is not of works, but of him who calls. It is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. That's the purpose of election. But we might ask, well, what do we mean exactly by election? Richard Muller, in his Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms, defines election this way. He says that it is the positive part of predestination, according to which God chooses in Christ those individuals who will be his eternally. Election is the positive part of predestination, according to which God chooses in Christ those individuals who will be his eternally. So then we have to ask the question, what is predestination? Well, he defines predestination as the prior appointment of a thing to a specific end. Thus, the eternal foreordination of God by which all rational creatures, angels and men, have been appointed to their ends, either to eternal life or to eternal death. So election is the positive side of that. Those chosen by God for eternal life, for salvation, are the elect of God. Reprobation is the negative side of predestination in which God passes over or does not choose some for salvation, leaving them in their sins and destined for damnation. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So Jacob was elect and Esau was reprobate. And this election of Jacob overturns the natural course of events. By nature, we would expect the firstborn to rule and the younger to be subject to him. But God, by his sovereign grace of election, overturns the natural order to show that election is by grace. As Paul said in Romans 9, the boys had done nothing good or evil, to warrant election. But God chose in his grace and according to his will to elect Jacob rather than Esau. And with God's announcement here that Jacob is the chosen son to carry on the line through whom the promise will be fulfilled, we now begin to see a transition from Isaac to Jacob as the main character. Isaac will continue to play a role But Jacob's part in the history of redemption will eclipse Isaac very soon. 
We also see a contrast here within the chapter. We've already experienced the death of Abraham, though it hasn't actually happened chronologically yet at this point, but there's a contrast here between the passing of the great patriarch Abraham and the birth of Jacob, from whom the nation of Israel will spring. It's the passing of the torch, so to speak. Another contrast we see is in the contrast between Isaac and Rebekah in their response to the twins. Jacob was loved by his mother, but Esau was loved by their father. And look at the reason that Isaac loved Esau in verse 28. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So Isaac loved Esau because he loved to eat the meals that Esau prepared from the game that he had hunted. Now, we're not told why Rebekah loved Jacob, but we've already seen that God loved Jacob. And most commentators, John Gill, John Calvin, Matthew Henry, will attribute her love to respect for the divine blessing and authority of God in the matter. So Matthew Henry writes, Rebekah was mindful of the oracle of God, which had given the preference to Jacob, and therefore she preferred him and her love. And if it be lawful for parents to make a difference between their children upon any account, doubtless Rebekah was in the right that loved him whom God loved. But by contrast, Isaac loves the one that God hates. And I have to believe that Rebekah told Isaac what God had said to her when she went and prayed during her pregnancy. It seems strange, doesn't it, that Isaac would choose to love the one that God hates, the one that God has said would serve the other? John Calvin relates this to our theme of election, saying, "...the foolish affection of the Father only the more fully illustrates the grace of divine election." The fact that Isaac prefers the son that God hates and not the one that God loves only proves that Jacob, being chosen as the son of promise, was the work of God and not the work of men. It was by God's sovereign choice and not by Isaac's. If Isaac had his way, Esau, the firstborn, would be the chosen son. In fact, in chapter 27, which we'll get to in a few weeks, Isaac actually intends to go ahead and give the blessing to Esau rather than to Jacob, despite knowing the will of God in the matter, so that God's purpose of election might stand. Jacob is chosen by God, not by the will of Isaac. But there's another testimony to the grace of God in election, and, and that's found in the final pericope in the chapter, which tells the story of the affair of the lentils. That's my name for it. Uh, during the Reformation, there was a conflict that happened between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics, which is known as the affair of the sausages. So I call this the affair of the lentils. And so we read in verse 29, Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. So there's the, the backdrop to the scene. Esau has been out hunting. He comes in, he's tired, he's exhausted, and he's hungry. Jacob is cooking a big pot of lentil stew. Verse 30, And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. Now, next week, Lord willing, we will look more closely at these two men and the contrast between them. 
and we will discuss their names. But you do need to know that Esau's name comes from the fact that he was born so hairy. So he's given the name Harry. But here he earns for himself a nickname, the nickname Red. That's what Edom means. In fact, the New King James has a footnote that explains that Edom literally means red. It is a derivative of the same word that Esau used to refer to the stew. Uh, The word stew is supplied in our English translations. Uh, He literally said, give me some of that red. So he earns the nickname for himself, and he went from hairy to red. Now, he was red when he was born. And I don't know if that refers to his hair or to his skin. But it says in verse 25, And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. So they didn't name him Red at the time. They named him Harry. And we'll talk more about that next week. But here he earns the nickname Red. And his descendants will keep this nickname. And they will be known as the Edomites. But it's Jacob's response to this inquiry that really interests us. In verse 31, but Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. Now, what should Jacob have done? His brother comes in tired, hungry, asks for a bowl of stew. Jacob should have given him a bowl of stew. No strings attached. Scripture, in fact, tells us if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. How much more, your brother? But Jacob wants that birthright. And so he offers a deal. The birthright for a bowl of red stuff. That seems ridiculous to us because it is. It's ridiculous. Who would sell their birthright for a bowl of red lentil stew? But as ridiculous as it is, and we'll discuss this more next week, but Esau agrees. He says the birthright isn't any good to him anyway. So Jacob makes him swear on the deal and then feeds him. And like I said, we'll look at this event in more detail next week, but I want to point out now that the birthright usually went to the firstborn. Usually, not always. When Jacob himself will bless his sons before his death in chapter 49, he acknowledges Reuben as the firstborn, but the birthright goes to Judah. David will appoint Solomon to be king after him, giving the birthright to Solomon. Solomon is nowhere near being the firstborn son. David had six sons before he even married Bathsheba. Now, the firstborn was dead, Amnon. He had been killed by the thirdborn, Absalom, who was also dead. But the secondborn was still alive along with several other sons. In fact, Solomon wasn't even the firstborn of Bathsheba. He was the fourth son of Bathsheba. So when David appointed Solomon to be king after him, he's breaking with the tradition of the firstborn inheriting the birthright. And my point is this. Isaac knew the will of God in this matter. He knew that God had chosen the younger to rule over the older. And he would have been perfectly within his rights as the patriarch of the family to appoint Jacob as the heir of the birthright. It was the will of God, and Isaac had the authority to do that. And that is how Jacob should have approached the matter. Now, he didn't trick Esau out of anything. Esau went into this with his eyes wide open. He knew what he was doing, but Jacob is at fault 
for his actions in this episode. My point is, Jacob didn't deserve the election of God. Jacob did not deserve it. The election of God is by grace, according to the will of God. Jacob was elected by God to salvation, to be the son of promise, not of works, but of him who calls. Jacob didn't earn it. He didn't do anything to merit the grace of God and the election of God. And that is exceedingly good news because you and I don't deserve the salvation of God either. Paul told the Christians in Ephesus that they were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up together and made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Apart from the electing grace of God, Jacob would have been a child of wrath just as Esau was, and so would you and I. But because of the love with which God loved Jacob, he was predestined to salvation, to inherit not just the physical promises of the covenant in the land of Canaan, but the eternal inheritance in Christ. Not because he deserved it, but according to the electing grace of God, And because of the great love of God toward us, we also have been predestined to salvation and to an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. For we're told in Galatians that all those who believe are children of Abraham and are to be considered children of promise. But it's not because we've done anything to deserve it. We're no better than Esau or Jacob, by nature children of wrath, not deserving love and mercy from God, but receiving salvation by grace alone. If we deserved it, if we could merit salvation by our deeds, then it wouldn't be by grace. But God's promise of election stands. As it is written, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Jacob was chosen before his birth, but the Spirit here tells us that all those, Jacob, you, and me, all those who are saved, were chosen in Christ before the world was made. Elect of God, predestined to adoption as sons by the good pleasure of the Almighty God and for the praise of His glorious grace. So let me close with four brief points of application. Not all Christians understand and embrace this doctrine, and they often make accusations against those who do. One of those accusations is that if you believe this, if you believe that God chooses who will be saved, then you will have no motivation for evangelism and missions. History proves that that accusation to be false. 
the greatest evangelists and missionaries in the history of the church have believed this doctrine. The first American to ever become a foreign missionary, Adoniram Judson, believed in these doctrines of grace, as we call them. John Calvin, whose name is popularly associated with these doctrines, his consortium of pastors in Geneva trained and commissioned many thousands of pastors and missionaries to go back into Roman Catholic Europe and even around the globe into parts of South America to evangelize and to plant churches. Embracing the sovereignty of God and salvation, understanding that it is God who chooses the elect to be saved, actually provides confidence for our evangelism. We no longer have to fear that if we don't say things just right, someone might miss out on the grace of salvation. If God has chosen them for salvation, then even if we fumble in our words, God will work through that to bring them to salvation. We can have confidence in evangelism and missions because we know that God is at work to save his elect. Secondly, we can have an assurance of salvation. If God has elected us for salvation and it is not of our works, then we have no fear that we didn't do enough or that we've messed up somehow. It's not up to us. It is God's grace that saves us, not our own efforts. So we can have an assurance, a confidence, and a peace as we trust in the finished work of Christ rather than in our own efforts. Thirdly, an accusation that is commonly leveled against those who embrace the doctrines of grace is that they are arrogant. Oh, you think you're something special that God chose you. No. We've just seen Jacob didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it. Understanding and embracing the doctrine of God's election and salvation should actually humble us. We didn't deserve it. God saved us in spite of us. This should bring us to a point of humility rather than of pride and arrogance. And finally, those who understand and embrace the doctrine of election and of God's sovereignty and salvation should be motivated by that. We should be the most thankful of worshipers, worshiping the Almighty God who has saved us by His grace alone in spite of us In spite of our undeserving nature, he has saved us, elected us, not just for salvation, but as Paul wrote, for adoption as sons. We should worship him in thankfulness of spirit because of this. And that is my prayer for us, that as a church which embraces and teaches these doctrines of grace, that we would know the electing grace of God and that it would move us to have a confidence for evangelism and missions and assurance and peace with God in our salvation for a humility of mind and thankfulness of spirit in our worship because we serve a God who saves sinners. Let's pray.